0: Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com/slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor, take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Well, welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and I'm so glad that you're here today. You found the channel that loves atheists. And one of the reasons that that we exist is to share the evidence for the truth of the Christian faith. That's the principal reason we exist. And what better reason that you would present those things but that people might believe the gospel, repent of their sins, and become Christians. But today we're talking about methodology. And as we're looking at the methodology, the approaches that we take when we present, say, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, there are a number of ways that Christian thinkers over the years have um, gone about that that uh, that task, and so today I am honored. This is a great moment in the history of this channel for me because I'm so pleased to have Doctor Mike Lykona again, and now for the first time ever on this channel, one of my heroes, Doctor Gary Habermas. Gentlemen, thank you so much for agreeing to come.
1: Thanks, Braxton. Looking forward to a good show.
0: Well, I really appreciate it, and I'm excited about this. And I'll tell you, just, just real quick, one thing I'll just say by way of, uh, of, of comment before we start is I remember probably 15 years ago hearing the two of you um, on Reginald Finney's old uh, infidel, internet infidel thing or whatever, the, the internet guy, the infidel guy show. And uh, I thought, man, these guys these guys are so knowledgeable, so great. Man, I, I hope I get to meet those guys one day. So this is really fantastic. But uh, there have been, uh, first of all, tell us some things about your your work, your ministry, what's going on right now, just so people who maybe know who you are but don't know what you're working on at this moment can uh, can kind of hear where to go. Go
1: ahead, man. No, go ahead. <laughs> okay, we're gonna say go ahead, back and forth. <laughs> um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be discussing anything if I didn't mention my, my large magnum opus on the resurrection. I mean, it takes besides email, it takes virtually all my time, and I have to jump in on it every time I get a chance because I'm not getting her done. The first um, volume went to the publishers in March, thirteen hundred pages on the evidence for the resurrection, and by the way, um, of that thirteen hundred pages, six hundred is on the minimal facts and 600 are on additional arguments from gospels and uh, other paths to to reliability so i think other paths work i just i'm convinced that a of that minimal facts is the closest way quickest way uh, i'm halfway oh. through the second volume. everything's written but i'm halfway through editing the second volume and uh three and four to go after this
0: Fantastic. Well, we we can't wait. I know that the uh, Worldview Discussion Arena is excited to get our hands on that. and I'm sure the scholars are, too. So uh, that's that's really exciting. Dr. Habermas and Dr. Lycone, you were here just not too long ago. But but tell us what you've got coming up.
2: Well, I teach at uh, Houston Baptist University, a university that is far better than Liberty University in every respect. So I just want uh, all the viewers to know that. And um, um, so right now I'm working on a more popular level version of my uh, treatment on gospel differences and hope to have that done uh, by the end of the year and approved by a publisher. Um, yeah, so that, that's some of the stuff I've been working on. Not going to be doing any more debates until that is done. Um, well, that's too bad. So, yeah. It, well, debates are fun, but they do mm-hmm. take a lot of time. I take them seriously in my preparation time, and the board of our ministry has said uh, no more debates until you complete that book. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so I've been working on that. We'll be putting together uh, several lectures on the formation of the biblical canon. Um, yeah, so uh, that's just some of the stuff I'm doing. So teaching at HBU, uh, working on that book, and uh, you know, been studying the formation of the canon for a while done some stuff with Lee Martin McDonald, who's brilliant uh, on the matter. We don't agree on on everything, but wow, what an amazing, wonderful believer, follower of Jesus, and uh, he knows a lot about the canon, and I've, I've learned from him. So uh, yeah, that's what I've been up to.
0: So I, uh, that sounds fantastic, and all of those things are, well, many of those things are relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. I am being told, is there any way to turn them up? And so I've turned you up to the maximum. And hopefully that will help with that. Uh, people can let us know. Um, maybe I can turn myself down just a tad too. Maybe people can equalize well, it that way. Let me
2: know whether I should turn up the gain uh, here.
0: Maybe just a little bit, and people can tell us, and then I'll try to do that on the fly. Maybe do a testing one two real quick.
2: Yeah. Testing, testing one two three one two three testing. Yeah, Likewise, well, you sound good one, to me. Okay. Yep, you both sound very good there. All right, so uh, let's just move
0: forward as, as though everything's all right. I think it is. I think they can hear us. So, um, folks, uh, there is uh, an approach to presenting the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus um, that these men, and probably most notably Dr. Habermas on the left of the screen— has used for for years, and that is the minimal facts approach. And for those of us who really got into apologetics in the um, early 2000s, mid-2000s, uh, William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, Mike Lycona, these were the names of the guys that were out debating. And uh, so many of us just picked up something like the minimal facts and ran with it. Um, what would you like to say about that approach, its history, uh, those sorts of things, if anything, to sort of start this off, Dr. Habermas?
1: Well, I think if you do a cross-section of critical scholars, and let me say, you just do that to see the lay of the land. I want to be so clear. What scholarship says does not determine facts by the mere mention of their acceptance or rejection. But to do a lay of the land to see where people are, I found many, 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 many years ago in my dissertation that it's not hard to find a consensus of scholars and that they often start their historical Jesus works by saying, here's the scholarship that everybody agrees to. And they start that way. It's very common, a large number of them do this. And uh, so I started out in my dissertation with 12 facts, which are generally agreed to very closely. And then I narrowed down to a list of six of those. And sometimes, as Mike tells you in his dissertation, I've gone down as low as three with Mike. I've been to four. In our book together, Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, I did four plus one, we called it, because uh, Empty Two makes it on the facts, but not on the same degree of scholarly conviction. Uh, So we've done three. We've done four. We've done four plus one. I'm presently doing six plus one. Uh, because I, th- I mean, the same plus one as the Empty Tomb, greater than the facts, as good as just about any of the rest of them, and lacks a little of scholarly adjustment. Although I will be saying in my magnum opus, the percentage has gone up again. I just did a survey of 250 critical scholars, and uh, the Empty Tomb has moved up to about 80% acceptance from the previous 75. So so I, I will talk about the other six facts, but... I'd rather talk about the six plus one, the six be the minimal facts, part of the list of 12 and then empty tomb is borrowed from the remaining six facts. So that would leave five more. If you use the empty tomb as the plus one, I don't follow it makes sense, but I do six plus one facts.
0: Yeah. Makes sense to me. And um, have you been uh, surprised to see how your formulation of those things has been, was so successful? I mean, how was that initially when you saw it start to take off and people using it?
1: You know, I've, I've been doing this for 45 plus years and I'm only noticing recently how many people are saying, yeah, I, I buy those facts, but I buy those facts, but one caveat, you know, and, and um, a lot of guys make that comment. Uh, I'm including Dale Allison in his recent book, Richard Carrier years ago. He didn't say he buys them or loves them, but he said, except for the empty tomb, which is the second six, he goes, I think my theory can account for all these. Well, if he thinks his theory counts for it, we've got some talking to do. In fact, Mike and I did have a dialogue with he and a colleague years ago, but the fact that he would even say 11 out of his 12 facts are okay with me, or at least I can account for them, that
0: shows some people are watching. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say to people before we go any further that uh, if you're asking questions or you want to ask questions, um, we'll try to privilege super chats and we'll take the questions toward the end of the program here in just a little while. But so, gentlemen, um, one thing to to ask is um, I've read your both of your work uh, and read it a lot Um, is can we so, Mike, would you say that your approach is similar to Gary's, depending on your circumstance, perhaps. Um, I know you like to talk about bedrock facts, which my understanding is enjoy um, scholarly consensus and are highly evidential. Um, And so you use that language maybe to bring it in line with how historians talk or bring that language to bear. Um, But how would you change or nuance anything that Gary does?
2: Well, as you noted, uh, Braxton, it's very similar to what Gary does, but it does... does uh it's a little bit different in in so far as in my large treatment of it in in my book i talk about um you know historical method philosophy of history historical method i refer to it as historical bedrock um you know you know gary can talk about why he calls them minimal facts I, i'm not quite too sure I, I thought i knew from the the beginning it's kind of like okay you you've got these you can build a case for the resurrection of Jesus, but you can do it just based on a minimal number of facts. Um, What what I did was I used a term by Paula Fredrickson, a skeptical New Testament scholar who uh, once used the term historical bedrock. And she said, these are facts beyond doubt, facts past doubting. And uh, I kind of like that. I like the imagery of it because um, it's like, you know, scholars don't always agree on certain things on what uh, they're going to allow membership, you could say into the country club of what they call facts um, so you know what are they what what are they going to allow are they going to allow the empty tomb? are they going to allow the conversion of James the skeptical brother of Jesus are they going to allow uh the group appearances um, some yes, some no um, so uh what you do is you take the historical bedrock those are pretty much by the same definition Gary would give for minimal facts, those facts that for which there is very strong supporting data. And second, it's so strong that it's persuaded a consensus, a nearly universal consensus of heterogeneous consensus of scholars to grant them as facts. So you use that as your bedrock, that's the foundation on which you build your hypothesis. And um, if a hypothesis cannot account for any of the historical bedrock, well, then that hypothesis needs to be revised or abandoned altogether. And um, so uh, if you have several hypotheses, two or more hypotheses that can account for the historical bedrock, well, then what you do is you add second level or second order facts, things for which the supporting data is very strong, but maybe it, it doesn't. that fact doesn't um, necessarily command a nearly universal consensus. That'd be like the empty tomb, as Gary said, you know, it's strong supporting data, and 80% rather than 90 plus percent, you would add something like that. And then you say, all right, which hypotheses best account for the historical bedrock, and then the second order facts. Um, So that would be kind of our methods are a little bit different in in that sense. and then, so that's how I did it, my large book. And then more recently, um, well, I'd say more recently, shortly after my dissertation was published, the, the, the big resurrection book, then I started to think, well, why do I need to be confined to this historical bedrock? I think that, uh, that the disciples claimed that Jesus had been raised physically bodily from the dead. It doesn't amount to historical bedrock, but I think that the evidence for it is so strong that um, it, it's real, diff- really difficult to refute. And so I figured, you know, I'm gonna throw it out there and let's see how the critics respond to it. Um, and I haven't found a good refutation of it yet, so I just keep using it. And yeah. I, I find that that strengthens the case for the resurrection of Jesus all the more. But I don't right. throw a whole lot more yeah. past the historical bedrock.
0: Yeah. So, And, and actually, uh, that quote gets around, man, that Paula Fredrickson quote that you just mentioned. And, and also the one where it says, um, maybe it's the same quote where she says something like, I don't know what they saw, but as a historian, I know they must have seen something. Now, that's a powerful quote that really gets around.
2: You know, I, I saw those. <laughs> And I, if I remember correctly, it was um, a Peter Jennings special that came out around the year 2000 on the historical Jesus, and she had those two really good quotes in there, and and I wrote them down, and uh, used them in some books, and um, yeah, those are, are pretty powerful quotes. I, really I knew neat. that I you mean, had,
0: I knew that you had seen those on the news, and so that's what in the business we call like teeing you up. So I wanted you to get to tell that story. <laughs>
2: Rex, right. if I could add something. Yes, sir. Mike yes, I, sir.
1: Mike and I both say this, but I want it to come out. He wants it to come out so clearly. We say it in our writings over and over and over and over. And that is, uh, you started, your first question was asking me, what are some of these things that these, these guys allow? And that really is an exciting part of this that you're see what the critics allow. But by far the most important reason for doing this is because each fact we use from Mike's three to my six plus one to our four plus one we did together. We only use data, which are multiply um, uh, witnessed by the facts. So it's Mm -hmm. never a fact that critics say something's true. Therefore it is. It's never a Mm -hmm. fact that evangelicals say something's true. So therefore it is, there might be a good reason to consider, especially if you know the guy, but you don't make that your starting point. Your starting point is, the data on our side. And then you go, wow. Well, then it's not surprising that the people's views are on the side because the data are first on the side. And I'll just say of the six plus one that I just finished in volume one of the six plus one. If you count two things, how many separate arguments there are for each fact and how many additional of what I call suggestions, they're not separate arguments, but they're, don't forget these two kind of things there are over 100 considerations for those six plus one facts, over 100 factual considerations. So yeah, we're happy that the critics allow this. But as I've tell people a hundred times, I get the question on talk shows, um, what happens if the critics stop admitting it? They're too close to the fire. They wanna back off some of these. And I say, look, if they wanna back off all of them, that's their privilege. The big thing is they've gotta explain the data. And I don't think anybody can explain the data and not come away with a really strong view, so that's by far the strongest consideration. The so, the one that it, it, you might say the fact, the thing that that uh, critics are allowing is a nice ramification of the data, as as opposed to its own standalone reason. It's a it's a oh also don't forget they do this. It, it's a nice thing to add.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Let's so let's just jump into some of these types of criticisms that might come from someone who. Takes more of a like holistic type approach. i Have you heard that sure. term used? And um, the the notion is they might criticize, and you've kind of been explaining this already, but they might the the, the the I guess the most general criticism would be something like, "Well, look, Gary, here's the problem: is if you're presenting what these consensus of scholars think on these particular facts, that's all fine and everything, but isn't doesn't it make for a much stronger case?" To just present the evidence that convinces those consensus, and uh, and and just argue for the data itself, argue for the pieces of evidence themselves that convince the scholars, instead of instead of doing this whole uh, song and dance with the scholars, may, maybe just go with the evidence to begin with, or something like that. You what can. do you, what do you say to that sort of thing? Does that open up the discussion?
1: Sure. No, you can go with just the scholars. Now, one thing I would say, you mean just the evidence i'm sorry just the evidence thank you for that sometimes you know you're ahead of yourself and the word comes out that you didn't mean to come out um mike mike is a good person to point to here and um he is he's since he's moved on with the from the resurrection research for the time being to move on to plutarch and then again you heard him say reliability and even canonicity um you nobody can blame mike with not being Uh, very interested in a broader case beyond the minimal facts. Minimal facts do certain things. Other things do other good arguments. And someone goes, well, why not take the larger one? Because the smaller one, minimal facts, does it more succinctly, quickly. And when you're in a taxi cab, when you're on a plane, when you're in an audience speaking on a campus and someone stands up and says, all right, hotshots, I've got this question about blah, blah, blah. And you've got about two minutes to answer it. Or maybe you're even timed in a debate. You've got two minutes to answer it. I think it's
0: clear that the minimal facts argument does not shorter. But if I could use my—sorry. Well, I was just going to say that um, I I consider myself an Ephesians 4.11 evangelist. I'm interested in seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And and what better use of evidence for the resurrection but that people might come to believe that the resurrection happened and trust in Jesus. And so I want something—of course, we need to be able to talk about the evidence and go deeper. That's absolutely true. But I want something— uh, that I can use on that airplane, or or uh, talking with a friend at a coffee shop, or something like that. Sure. Yeah.
2: Sure. I'd like to go throw ahead, Mike. myself Here, um, so a lot of people are familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages, and you know the uh, concept behind it that each of us has a primary love language, uh, probably also a secondary love language. So there's like uh, physical affection, quality time words of affirmation, acts of service, and um, oh boy, gift giving. So you have those five. And um, the, the, the problem what happens is you, are, you love your spouse with your own love language. And so you think you're telling them you love them, but if they have a different love language, they're not hearing that you love them because that's not how they, they prefer to be loved. Um, And I think it's the same way sometimes, at least within different situations or a time in a person's life, when they have truth languages. Um, Now, I know that back in the fall of 1985, when I first met Gary, um, I was having doubts about my Christian faith. And I walked into his office, uh, knocked on the door, he invited me in, one of my roommates uh, suggested I see him. And uh, he was just really kind and open and authentic with me, and uh, he allowed me to express what was causing doubts. Now, at that point, I really wasn't interested that much in apologetics. I I felt like I had a relationship with the Lord. I loved praying. I loved studying scripture and and just growing in Christ. But I started to have these doubts. and so I didn't want to get into a lot of human arguments or a lot of the nitty gritty on why this is reliable and why we should trust a creation account. I, I just wanted something simple, you know, uh, can you alleviate these doubts right now? It's like going to the doctor's office. Look, I don't need to know what's causing all this pain in my hand. I just want the pain to stop. Can you can you help me? And um, And I think it's comforting then the minimal facts argument can work, and it worked for me in that instance, when he was able to say, all right, you know, I can give you a succinct reason in the next couple of minutes, real short, on why, you know, we're justified in believing Christianity is true. And he gave me the minimal facts approach. And he said, okay, well, this is, this is uh, we, we know that Jesus' disciples were claiming that, and they really believed that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Well, of course, I can say, well, you know, how, how do we know that? How do we know that that, you know, is that just because of the Bible? And he, he'd go, okay, well, we got these 9, 10, 11, 12 evidences here, right here. But he'd say, you know, you know, yeah, I can give you a bunch of those, Mike. But let me just tell you, it's, it's so strong that virtually every scholar who studies the subject, even very skeptical ones, are willing to grant it. Oh, really? Okay, you know, I don't need all those reasons. Um, so even if, if if virtually all skeptical scholars are willing to grant it, there must be some really good reasons for it. And so it gave me a very succinct argument uh, for the resurrection of Jesus. And for that time in my life, that was just what I needed. Um, that was my truth language, you could say at that point. Now, later on that changed and I wanted, I wanted more. And that's what led me into doing my doctoral dissertation, my doctoral research on the resurrection. But when I went into his office in the fall of 1985, I needed something that the minimal facts approach delivered. And and so, yeah, I, th- I think it's a great tool for a specific time and place. The maximal or whatever you want to call it, the holistic argument is another good approach. I, I do. I think the, the minimal facts approach is a stronger one. But um, yeah, I, I really don't care what one's going to use just as long as they do use something um, and can use it in its integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Braxton, I'll add there,
1: my, I use this just as a mere example. My um, research assistant, Ben Shaw, uh, has a lecture he gives uh, 12 different pa- paths to reliability of the New Testament. And by the way, he just got a contract on it from University. But he's doing these 12 things. And just that somebody would do that or that Mike would do a book on Plutarch, and a second book on reliability with things on canonicity shows that I don't think anybody who does a minimal facts argument thinks minimal facts is all there is, or it's the only way to get there, or if you got a you you teach a whole MA class or PhD class and you want to do reliability for the whole class, you're going to fill it up pretty easily there's ways to do this I don't object to that, he doesn't object to it my research assistant, Ben, who did it um doesn't object to it uh and intervarsity wants to get it out there well that's going to be interesting because he's getting they're getting it out there from ben did his and phd dissertations on the resurrection well he defended minimal facts before i even knew him defended minimal facts but now like mike he's saying hey there's a lot of roads to this you pick the one that works for you and not just all the time we're not trying to say that pick the one that if you're teaching a course out in your in your church you got to unpack more than minimal facts if you want to. Um, it's just one of several ways. We don't try to put down any other path to reliability.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so that kind of brings us to the content uh, of of the minimal facts in a sense, because one of the criticisms that one could maybe raise or ha- and has been raised is the notion that okay. You guys will get on a debate stage or you'll make a presentation, perhaps in front of a university or a church or something, and you'll lay out all of these um, all, all of these claims that—and and you're right. We all know you're right. The skeptics don't reject that you're right, that the majority of scholars or even the consensus or it's a bedrock fact that X. Okay, but the concern might be— um, that, we, that that's true on a pretty broad definition of X, and listeners may come to believe that the scholarly consensus is actually far more specific to what Christians believe than it is. In other words, do we kind of unintentionally exaggerate what the consensus is in agreement about?
1: I'll, I'll say real briefly, there are a lot of approaches to reliability, used to use Ben's number 12, and many like it, Craig Blomberg's large number, i'm not i wouldn't say just speaking for me i wouldn't say that critics allow every one of all those reasons i don't think a critic's going to say um well i'll pick something whether ruffles feathers or not i don't think most critics are going to say matthew wrote matthew or john wrote john but we still need to argue for reliability those are maybe even for authorship that's up to individual people but i'm the, the critics agreed to this to a high percentage applies to the minimal facts and to certain other arguments that people use, but that, not the whole, if you're going to use, if you're going to broaden it out to a list of 12, you're not going to get that kind of critical acceptance on many of these. I don't know what you think about that, Mike, but.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, when you're talking about the consensus too, uh, it the, the, someone might say, well, you don't have a consensus of scholars for that, but you've done the actual bean counting and work on that uh, more yeah. than anyone else in the history of the world. <laughs> so I think you, you know about that and, and your, your, your magnum opus volumes are, are going to reflect that. So, you know, how, how many people out there have studied and said, well, I, I've, uh, you know, reviewed what 250 critical scholars on the resurrection have said about it since 1975 and 80% approximately are affirming the empty tomb. Well, I don't think anybody else has done that. Uh, except you. So you have earned the right to be able to talk about that. I mean, I, I can talk about, I have not done the bean counting, um, and I've done not done as much uh, of the, you know, I'm not familiar as many sources as you, but I, I do have like over 50 pages of sources in my sure. bibliography since 1985. It's, it, it gives me a, a good, what, what can I say? It gives me a good, um, if I can give an opinion, uh, I think it's at, at least a, a credible opinion. I might not be able to say this much percentage, but it's, it's my impression of where scholars are, whereas you may be able to give actual figures, but the figures are certainly there to say with these minimal facts. And the minimal facts, yeah. yeah. But, you know,
1: Braxton, on the larger, you know, 10, 12, whatever, other arguments for reliability. There are still a lot of critics that can be cited. We just wouldn't say it was unanimous or anywhere near to it. But but again, there, it's not how many people say it's true. Even the minimal mm-hmm. facts, just to repeat, it's what the data say. And we wouldn't be doing any of the minimal facts arguments or any of the more general holistic approaches or praising those approaches if we didn't think there was a good deal of agreement. You're not going to say something where you're only talking to yourself. And, right. Uh, But still, the data is the be-all, end-all, beginning and ending of it. And if they agree, that's wonderful.
0: Well, you know, that's kind of an important thing then is, okay, so if the data is what really matters underneath, you know, trying to think of a critic's perspective, then, okay, I get what you're saying that uh, someone might say, I, I get what you're saying that this kind of Makes a concise presentation of the material that has some immediate credibility, even to unbelievers and that sort of thing. And then, as we, as someone wants to talk, we can we can go further and look at the data, right? But but if if the material, um, if the evidence that we have, you know, like say Tacitus uh, acknowledging Jesus' crucifixion or something, if, if these sorts of facts that undergird these things are what really does support the case, then someone might say, well, shouldn't we just do that anyway? Because really that's the stronger argument. And even if it takes, uh, even, even if it's maybe more difficult to articulate, or like you said, we're on a plane, maybe we don't have all that time. Well, still, that's the more trustworthy way to go. What would you say to someone like that?
1: I'm fine. I'm fine with it. I do notice that when you say secondarily, this is virtually unanimous, it takes a big thing away from them. They go, well, don't all the critics disagree with you? And that's why they're critics? And the answer is no. In fact, some, this is irrespective of what method you use. One, one philosophical uh, component we have to add here, probably maybe the most common question I get, certainly one of them, is this, if all these critics agree with what you say they do, why aren't they believers? Great question, except it's when you start thinking about unpacking it's a little bit it it misses some big points. So the minute you start talking, they know what they missed. And what you say is, look, guys, from a philosophical viewpoint, world views Trump facts, not in evidence, but in perception. And Mm -hmm. if they think their worldview will never allow your worldview, they'll never come over for any number of reasons. Maybe it's I lose all my friends. Maybe, you know, I'd, I'd lose my lifestyle. I couldn't do the job I'm doing. I can't handle that, whatever. But if I think something's not going to happen, some people, when they hear the facts, I get I get contacted pretty regularly by, by atheists who say they changed. And some of them, interestingly, will say, hey, this wasn't last week, so that you don't hear that I gave it up a week from now. I've been a believer for two years. I've been a believer mm. for one year. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm witnessing. Amen. It's very gratifying. But not everybody does it that way. And mm-hmm. however a person comes, they're, they're responsible for their own conviction. Bill Craig, in one of his early books, says there's two ways to re- know the resurrection occurred, by the data and by the witness of the Holy Spirit. If you come and say it's by the witness of the Holy Spirit, I don't care to argue with you, they shouldn't be criticized for that. You know, right. they, they shouldn't be criticized for that. We don't think that everybody has to memorize, okay, now what's the third minimal fact? You know, we, we don't we don't do that.
2: Mm-hmm. Brexton um yeah. what I what I heard you kind of asking I, I I'm not sure I heard you right but I, I I heard you asking that or or saying that some people would say well yeah it, it might be more concise uh to use a minimal fax, but if you only had a short amount of time to share with a person you should still do a maximal approach is that kind of what you said uh, well, the just
0: I could someone might say, well, you just shouldn't use a minimal facts if it's not as strong as actually giving them all the data, even if it is more concise.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I just say that's just not that's just not practical. You know, mm-hmm. it. What, what's the what is really the reason? And and by the way, I don't think the maximal approach is a stronger approach than the minimal facts approach. Mm. Um, but but let's just say it is. What is the purpose? that you're sharing at that moment and defending the Christian faith and, and the resurrection of Jesus. Why are you doing it? Um, if you know that you only have a limited amount of time, why would you go off on a maximal approach? Um, mm-hmm. If I'm involved in a public debate and I only have 20 minutes to give an opening statement, I, I don't have time for a maximal approach. And even if I wanted to, to give, let's say an outline for a maximal approach, I'm not going to have time to really fill in all the blanks with it. I can only Mm. give an outline. I can barely go further than that in 20 minutes with a minimal facts approach. Yeah. So, um, you know, why are you doing it? Um, So I think that'd be the main question. And then another thing I I would just add add to that is if you do a maximal or holistic approach, as you're calling it, um, and you add some things, let's say you, you add gospel reliability. You risk the chance that when you are engaged in a conversation with someone that they will bring up something like, let's say, contradictions in the Gospels. And then you get off on a, a rabbit trail, which is really unnecessary, um, and, and talking about um, biblical inerrancy, divine inspiration, how to resolve these, you know, are they reliable because the contradictions, was there one angel or were there two at the tomb? Um, uh, potential errors such as the Quirinius being uh, governor of Syria when Augustus did the census. Okay, so, you know, what if Luke got it wrong? Well, that doesn't mean that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Right. Um, and and so by doing more of the holistic approach, you do risk with everything that you add to it. You risk the chance of just getting off on of one of these rabbit trails, whereas... Mm. With the minimal facts approach, there are far, far fewer rabbit trails on which you can go. And it yeah. does what Stephen Covey said. It keeps the main thing the main thing.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. So I want to say something to the audience real quick, which is just to remind you, when we get to the Q&A, and let's just say, and we'll do that in maybe another 10 minutes um, and or sooner, perhaps, depending on how things go. But um, I wanted to give you guys a chance to voice your thoughts about criticisms that maybe i haven't raised there are there's at least one that we'll talk about during the q and a but i just wonder if uh, what's on your heart about this that might, perhaps you want to say
1: you know i i think if i could just hit some things i tried to get my comments i tried to fit them in up close same reason in case we can't get the longer ones in right so <laughs> i'd say it's about the facts it's about a lot of facts over 100 and I want to make sure these aren't like a hundred special arguments. They're arguments plus, you know, don't forget these additional considerations. But good arguments, these minimal facts and thing I just turned in, I'd say they average fifteen to eighteen arguments by themselves. Arguments, and then you throw in there. Here's a creed that's relevant. Here's a creed that's relevant. Here's a likely comment that you know, but they evidence the same facts. I would. I want to say. Number one, the evidence has to be number one. Number two is a distant number two in my mind, but those are the only two criteria. And on what Mike said about reliability, if someone asks me that, I'll gladly defend reliability. But where do I start in a two minute question? Do I say, well, some people want to defend Matthew even as the author, even though it's not a majority. Well, I realize I said too much, I can't go into that one. Mike knows a, a fellow who did uh, research, good research, that the majority of scholars in this study still conceded that Mark was the author of the second gospel, and a slight majority said that Peter was still his source. We we haven't heard that that's a majority for a long time, or Luke acts. Those are great moves. But you know, just to say it, if they're looking for a majority case, they're not going to let you uh, say, oh, well, that's on your word, right? Where do, you, where do you teach again? You both teach at Baptist schools, right? Yeah, that does it for me. <laughs> You know, you can't get there. Well, let me let me try John. No, don't go there. That's going to take you two hours by itself. Um, you know, authorship. So and for reliability, I, best, best case scenario, uh, a course, teaching a course on it where you can develop it. And minimal facts would be one of the subways, one of the bedrock approaches to argue it.
0: Yeah, well, I'm impressed with the degree to which you guys are sitting here going, hey, it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, when I was first trying to lose weight and, and I was, well, maybe this diet or that diet or whatever. This is a very crass uh, analogy, but the point is people would be like, well, look, just pick one and do it. I, they'll work if you'll just do it. And you're saying, look, there are, are, there are a number of ways to argue for the resurrection sure. of Jesus. Some take more time, some take less time, some take more knowledge and detail and familiarity with the concepts, some don't. But uh, just, just as long as you're doing it in a responsible way, and this is a way to do it that's responsible and concise and really impressive.
1: Mike's approach is Mark's, that one comedy. made is very, very important that you can't just cover the territory, but you leave yourself open to more comebacks. And if you end the thing or the, your time's up for the question and you can't answer it, it makes you look like you lost the point and you and you simply didn't have time to finish it. Like Contradictions is a great way to get yourself in a lot of trouble. And if you go down that path, not because there are, it's because you can't handle 50 purported situations in three minutes or five minutes. Yeah. You're not going to do it.
0: Yeah, and it's like it a like, shotgun blast. Then
1: it looks like the conversation has swung, and your argument, minimal facts, you've already let it go, and now you're losing the conversation because you put your footprint in the other one. that That's no criticism of the other ones. Just have your time and be able to explain it.
2: Yeah. One thing I uh, one thing I'd throw in, you know, before the Q and A, um, you know, spent a bunch of time recently in uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and um, they had a very special relationship. Paul with the believers at Philippi. In fact, um, he, he was thankful for their partnership in the gospel with him. That they had supported him. Um, that, in fact, they were the only church to support him, in um, in in certain ways that he says. Uh, In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he calls them his beloved, his dear brethren, whom he longs to see, his joy and crown. Um, And so the special affectionate relationship he had with the Philippian believers. And in chapter 1, he's in prison. He's writing from prison. And, um, you know, he's thinking about these Philippians. And he's aware that there are people in the Philippian church who out of rivalry with Paul are trying to supplant him. And they are like talking, you know, as authorities and they're dogging Paul. And uh, again, trying to supplant him as in essence, the father, their spiritual father. And he's in prison. So there's not much that he can do. He just knows this is going on. And there's only that one voice that's, that's you know, uh, that, that can be heard on a consistent basis. I mean, imagine, a guy in prison in a, a city away from his home, and he knows there's a guy that's moving, trying to move in on his wife, and there's nothing he can do. He's not allowed to communicate with her outside. You know, it, it must have been really stressful for Paul. Um, and but And he says that these others, he says, some to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and rivalry, but some also from goodwill. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause him distress in his imprisonment. And what follows is just profound. He says, what? What then? What's my response? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, from good motives, bad motives, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice it's like, whoa, I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking of this now. I think if that's how Paul can respond to those who are doing him wrong and are preaching out of bad motives, evil, uh, um, sinful motives, I think that we can rejoice when someone is preaching the gospel according to an apologetic method that's different from our own. I mean, I am not a presuppositionalist like Gary. I am an evidentialist. Um, and I think that, that that that's my preferred way. That's how I hear things best. I, the presuppositionalist method would have done nothing for me when I was experiencing doubts. Now it works for others. Fantastic, I rejoice in that. Just preach the gospel no matter what method you're doing. Um, I am fine with whatever method. It's not Your method isn't gonna to speak to all, mine isn't gonna to speak to all. Uh, just as love languages aren't, aren't going to be the same for everyone. But no matter what method one is using, I rejoice that they are proclaiming Christ.
0: Amen. That's beautiful. And as you were saying that, Mike, I was sitting here thinking about when you and I were in the garden tomb garden and you preached uh, a communion service and we took communion there together. And you all should have seen it too up in Galilee, he recited the um, entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not sure which version it was, and you had translated Matthew. your own version from the Greek, didn't you?
2: I did. Yeah, it was from Matthew. It was, uh, it was uh, yeah, that's on um, that's on our YouTube channel. You just type in "Sermon on the Mount" and and it was video recorded and it. Um, you can oversee the Sea of Galilee. I mean that was that was just beautiful wasn't it a beautiful it sure scenario and
0: and and one uh, of the things real quick because I know that we need to move to question and answer and, and I'm sure there's more to say but I want to say this because I see this so often in the online space uh, in these worldview discussion arenas I, I have been fortunate to know you and and I've and I spent an afternoon with you and Gary in your house there one time and know dr. Craig and some others. And when I hear people um, speak about them with, and and I'm talking more, I guess, about people of other worldviews now, but when I hear people question the integrity of men like you and and people like you, who I know, who I've had emotional moments with and have prayed with and those sorts of things, it really breaks my heart. And I can tell you as much as, I mean, they'd say the same things about me perhaps, but I think that there is, um, I can speak as a person who's seen from the inside that there is a love for the listener there and a care for the gospel. And I just, I hope people get that because there's so much clinical discussion of arguments and evidence, but the heart is there too with men like you. And I just, I really appreciate that. I want people to know it. So, yeah. So, so shall we go to Q and A or is there anything else, Gary, that you'd like to say uh, before we move on? fine. All
1: right.
0: Okay. So there has been some interesting, uh, activity show up in the chat throughout this. Um, I'm going to get to the super chats first. First of all, I refer to this man, Jim Amberg, as our channel angel. He has always been so helpful to us and, uh, has, has been financially such a blessing, but also in, in, uh, in terms of relationship and Jim, thank you for that super chat. He says, Mike, what are your thoughts on the shroud? Dr. Habermas, have your thoughts changed on it lately? Braxton, your two cents is always welcome as well. Well, thanks. I really
2: appreciate that. Gentlemen? Well, Jim, thanks. And and Jim is a friend as well. He's been a friend on our channel. Um, yeah, I, I would say I, I'm not an expert on the Shroud, I'll defer to Gary on that. But I will just add that on um, our, uh, we did a, uh, Dave Beck and I did a, uh fest for gary a, a couple of years ago i think two years ago it came out and uh, we had two people in it who wrote on the shroud mark Foreman, who recently passed very good uh, essay by mark and then there's another essay that i really liked um by um oh my I just very Schwartz. yeah Barry schwartz he's a a jewish uh a photographer he was the official photographer for the Shroud of Turin research project, he actually video or, uh, took high definition photographs—the ones that you see of the Shroud of Turin. Thousands. He took them. He's been there and did that. And he's not a believer. He is not a Christian. Okay, he's a Jewish agnostic. And he is it Mike? Wrote Mike? On- is,
0: it, is it? Is it? I don't mean to interrupt you. Is this the guy? You're talking about? Is he the guy that was referenced in? Yeah, the book that your publisher sent me on the Shroud, and and uh, he was there with the first team and has continued to catalog information on a website about this. Is that who I'm thinking of?
1: He's got by far the best known website called Shroud .shroud www.shroud.com. It It doesn't look like much. It's pro and con. It's loaded. It's a very full site. Best photographs you'll ever see.
2: He came out with arguments against or that discredited the carbon 14 uh, dating that was done on the Shroud of Turin. I think it's... uh, quite Decisive, so that's what I would say to yeah. that, Jim. All
0: right, yeah. and my two cents is contained in two episodes <clears throat> of Trinity Radio Live that you can see from oh, last year, whenever that book came out, we did a couple episodes on it that, that really did well. Um, so, I, well, hey, wait a minute though, I have I want to ask a follow up on that because I've heard Dr. Habermas set, put a fairly high credence on uh the the shroud where where did you say that lands right now (laughs) well i don't know if you're
1: talking teasingly i'm kind of well known for saying a phrase i'll say um where are you on the shroud right now and i'll say well i don't know what side of the bed did i get up on this morning (laughs) and was it sunny or was it raining it depends on the mood i'm in you know ha 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 Uh, Mm -hmm. but but that that does describe when you have a scientific study the science goes up and down. That's just what scientific research is. And if you look at some of the data or, you know, the central data, I think it's pretty high. But there are comebacks of people who think they can prove it. I don't think they have really come close to it. Not according to the guys that are involved, the chief chemists and, and physicists and pathologists. But
2: So where are you on a bad day? On a bad day,
1: I'll frequently say 80%. Now, my exams, that's almost a D. So... On a bad day, 80. On a good day, (laughs) I'll be walking through the house at about 90, and I'll be going, wow, I actually did this once I caught myself doing it. Wow. You mean, talking to myself, wow, Jesus did rise from the dead. go, what about the minimal facts argument? Yeah, well, this is just a different angle on all that. It's just, it's good. I think it's a good argument. I think it's a worthwhile argument. I think it should be brought up, but I did not even bring it up when I first thought Oh, I have a passing comment here and there, but uh, I don't have much at all on the Shroud of turn. Maybe uh, less than a page out of 1,300 pages.
2: Uh, and answer to Jim real quick. If I had to choose real or fake, I'd say real. Whoa. Sweet. That's pretty Sense strong. A fan- you got to
1: find the right side of the bed today.
2: <laughs> That's
0: right. Uh, hey, I want to tell you something. This should be, you know, it's like, the, the wish fulfillment type of thing. Not everything that we wish for is necessarily false or is that a reason to think it's false? Uh, children hope that they'll get married one day and have a beautiful wedding and a wonderful marriage and some of them do. Some people want to be wealthy one day and some of them do. So uh, that it would be super cool if the shroud was legit is not a reason to think it's not legit necessarily, right? True. So I... Like I one uh, thing Gary, Gary
2: yeah. has said it. I don't know if this is originated with you or did you get it from somewhere another source where you said if the shroud is the authentic one of jesus we actually have a photograph of the resurrection yeah that that's was pretty cool i'm
1: quoting somebody else and that's because and more than one person said it but uh that's because the latest data on the cause of the image you can spit in it you can say it's horrible you can say it makes me sick it makes me angry but the latest data say that the image on the shroud is caused by radiation from a dead body. And many, many shroud, they're not all believers, but the shroud guys, if you can't explain the the uh, radiation from a dead body, you haven't gone far enough. If you can't get the one thing, don't go off scoffing at it. You get an yeah. answer
0: to it. Yeah, that's pretty good. All right. Uh, again, starting with Super Chats, it's uh, Caleb Jackson here says how does the minimal facts argument address parallels to mass hysteria and apparition encounters that allison brings up how is the resurrection better attested thanks D- so i i'm sure you guys are familiar with this sort of thing mike you and i were just talking about allison the other day and some somewhat in this regard so what are, what are your thoughts gentlemen
1: let me, let me jump in and Mike, Mike and I do this in our case for the resurrection book. So many people talk about this topic and don't make the necessary psychological uh, clarifications. This includes some psychologists. Number one, you've got data, and you've got to do something with data. But sightings, it, the language of the resurrection is language of, of, of looking, appearance, sight. The language, New Testament guys say it's language of sight. But not all sight phenomena are the same as is what we see in historical events. There are, uh, some people are mentally ill, and we call those psychoses. And we have a hard time believing things like, uh, well, the, any crazy thing uh, caused by medicine or caused by whatever, drugs. But a lot of other people uh, view things, but they're not done by sight we call magicians illusionists and that second category is illusion you can mike to his credit was dialoguing by, by mail email but he was dialoguing with two of the top psychologists in the world who'd done a book on hallucination and he pointed out to them that their case they, they didn't say much of anything if anything for uh group hallucinations but mike pointed out to him the example you used it's not an example of group hallucination. It's a, it is an example of them seeing something on the side of a barn or something. But they were seeing something on the side of the barn. It was there. You can go back and see that every day. But it doesn't mean that's hallucination. An hallucination is radical because when you believe something that for which there's no external referent, if there's an external referent and you're arguing about whether a big bird is a buzzard or an eagle, there is an answer to that but that, it, but it can't be illusion, it may not be a bird at all. And then other people have delusions and they see, so I think one of my, Dale Allison's a, a good friend of both of ours, but I think he doesn't make all those distinctions in this book. And I think mm-hmm. he should be a little clearer about what separates some of those things instead of just lumping them together and saying, hey, maybe this is evidence of that. And I say that
2: respectfully, but but I think it's gotta be clearer. Regarding mass hysteria, my understanding, I'm not a mental health professional, but what I have heard from a mental health professional is that mass hysteria is typically auditory, not visual in nature. And as Gary just pointed out a moment ago, it was appearances. These are visual experiences that they had. So it seems to me that mass hysteria doesn't work there. Um, in, in terms of the apparitions, uh, the encounters with apparitions that um, Allison cites, I um, I might be a little more optimistic about those uh, uh, heuristically in explaining the appearances than, than, than Gary is. Um, I have a, a very good friend, uh, Jonathan Kendall, he's a nephrologist, a, a physician, a kidney doctor. And he, I right now am reading a draft of a book that he has written based on some research he's been doing for the last few years on things such as apparitions And um, there are, as Allison says in his book, and as Jonathan points out in his manuscript, there are more than of which I was aware, where the apparition can actually eat. The apparition can be touched, hugged. Um, It's rare, but it does happen. And um, so it wouldn't make uh, Jesus' appearances unique in that sense. Now, I'd say this, apparitions appearing to groups are also rare. It does happen but they are relatively rare. And then you have to define what the apparitions are. By the way, Dale himself has a very
1: strong sentence where he says, I'm pretty sure the empty tomb happened, and I'm sure that after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared to his disciples. That's a one-liner. In fact, last time I was with him, I I said, that's my favorite sentence in your whole book. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and he starts out his new book. People think he's such a skeptic, but he starts out his new book. and He said, I want to be clear. I believe that Jesus appeared to his disciples. That's how he begins his book. Yeah. But some of these other things, these apparitions and group deals, you still have to separate between illusion and delusion and eating. Uh, you know what else Dale would tell you? Dale believes in near-death experience. He wrote a near-death chapter for my Feshrift, and he believes in near-death experiences deathbed perceptions, post-death perceptions, uh, if if you believe in those things, that opens a whole another objective category where you can see something that really occurred. But don't call it an hallucination if there's five people in the room. Um,
2: yeah. In terms of the apparitions, I, I do think we, uh, something that's major you have to take into consideration is the overall context in which they occur. Um, so, when an apparition occurs to another individual, you know, they're usually not always, but they're usually someone that they knew. Uh, Sometimes they're a stranger, someone who said to it, like a ghost of someone in the past. Um, But, but Jesus, uh, you know, he claimed to be God's uniquely divine son. And um, he was also known as a miracle worker during his lifetime. We have sufficient evidence for that, that he was known as a miracle worker during his lifetime. Now, Uh, A skeptic may say, well, that doesn't mean he was a miracle. Well, I agree with that. But it does seem to suggest quite strongly that he was performing deeds that astonished crowds to the point that they regarded these things as divine miracles and exorcisms. So it's this person of Jesus. He's performing these astonishing deeds. He's claiming to be God's uniquely divine son. We have very good historical evidence that he predicts his imminent death and subsequent resurrection and then when he's appearing to individuals, groups, friends and foe alike, um, I think we have to regard these as more than just a um, an apparition. If we're defining apparition as just simply the appearance of a spirit being um, like a ghost or or something like that, um, I, I think we have to consider these more along the lines as an appearance of the risen Jesus to them. And it's also, I think it's it's germane that um, when a person sees an apparition, even if they're physical, you don't think that if you went back to their grave, their grave would be empty. And yet it said that Jesus, you know, we've got some good reports and, and some decent evidence that there was an empty tomb. So um, if, if you're going to say, well, that's not enough. Well, then what would it take to show you? What would it take to convince you that the appearance of Jesus differed from an apparition? Um So I I do think that there's sufficient there uh, to to suggest the appearances of Jesus did differ. And it's especially the context in which they occurred. It's charged with religious significance.
1: Rax, if I could add a sentence at the end, both Mike and I have published the conclusions of at least two researchers that we know. One is a clinical psychologist, which is the medical end of psychology. And the other one is a medical doctor who works with this. They both said they, they, check the psychological and medical literature and there's not a single case of group hallucinations in the literature going back decades so there's also so to extend this there are differences between i know a guy who saw i know five people who saw and producing that so that it can be chalked up for a medical or psychological journal not there in the cases so if Christians are blamed by saying things that nobody else knows about, how about a little bit of criticism being on the other foot?
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, this is just a funny comment here from Jim again. He says, The hardest part about sharing the information from the case for the resurrection of Jesus was finding a computer that still had a CD-ROM drive. It was a great book and a real page-turner. Yeah. Um, okay, now this is interesting. Here is a, um atheist YouTuber who I've had friendly interactions with. Um named Godless Engineer. And this is what Godless Engineer says. I see the minimal facts argument as just getting to a belief arose, but doesn't connect it to actual history. Thoughts on this view?
1: Yeah, let me let me take a stab. When you say 100 and something arguments and considerations defend facts, those are historical considerations. To say this isn't even a historical argument sounds to me like I don't like the argument approach. You may not like what the people report, but they did report it. It's in the data, and it's in data from from unbelievers. It does correspond to real history. And my second thought is, yeah, a belief arose. Yeah, we're okay. We say the disciples had experiences that they believe were appearances of the risen Jesus that's true. But try to come up with a naturalistic theory and see what happens. In fact i just told mike today most of the major naturalistic theories the biggies are being abandoned by the major scholars what i mean by that is they'll say little things but almost very few of them will choose just one and run with it and as one said to me in a debate no i'm not going to pick one why not because you're going to get me in a corner and i'm not going to be very comfortable so if they think that's a lot of naturalistic theories then i guess beliefs arising are the best they're the best response because they're not disproven
2: so I'd only add. I, I think that the minimal there can be different types of minimal facts approaches. We, you know, minimal facts. We can get to those now. What do you do with those minimal facts, Gary? May and that's worldview.
1: That's worldview. People will reject whatever they want, and Christians have to think. Hey, you're on your own. You account for what your beliefs are. If that's your, said. The question is: These are beliefs arose. This is your belief that's rose. How come you never have any beliefs? Only we have beliefs, right? Beliefs are on the other are on the other. And by the way, uh, for a godless engineer, I say this teasingly, we've got good atheist friends too. Try to produce an argument for atheism, which if it's true, would require atheism to be true. When you say that in a debate, many debaters that Mike and I know, they won't take you up on it. They're, oh, I'm not not arguing if it's true. I'm just saying I don't believe what you believe. Now, I want to know your view is true. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to say I don't like your view. Well, huh. Fess up, you know. Come up with your own argument if you don't like this one. Give one on the other side.
2: What what I would how I'd respond to godless engineer, you know, I'm saying the minimal facts approach. It depends what you do with the facts afterward. Yep. And uh, the, what I do with the facts is I take a historical approach. So I say let's let's for let let's compose and or formulate various hypotheses that attempt to account for these minimal facts or historical bedrock, and then let's weigh those. Uh, various hypotheses to see which one explains the facts the best. So I use certain criteria like explanatory scope, explanatory power, less ad hoc, and plausibility. So I'm using arguments of inference to the best explanation. And what a historian is going to do is say, well, the argument that best account, the hypothesis, I'm sorry, the hypothesis that best accounts for the minimal facts, the historical bedrock, should be regarded as what probably occurred. And so when you uh, go through that exercise, the resurrection hypothesis does come out on top every time. And so that's how I connect the minimal facts, the historical bedrock to actual history. I, I use historical method. By the
1: way, Braxton, people don't know Mike's big book, which is the, the best one out there on historical argument for sure. Um, he, he doesn't just say this. Every, all the other views come out short. He measures up, what, six or seven?
2: Um, you have one in six, appendix, too. Six.
1: six and plus an appendix where you think the guy's pretty good. Um, he's got at least a half dozen. And he com- he puts the facts up there and checks the boxes on where the guys come out. So he has done a put up or shut up kind of argument where here's the data. How does your view uh, explain it? And he goes with a lot of actual critical views and rejects them for not explaining the data. It is The data are historical.
0: All right. Um, I did want to get to this one. This is from a fellow Christian YouTuber Net, whose channel is called Testify. And he says, my biggest issue with, with the minimal facts, my biggest issue is regarding the lack of details of testimony from the minimalist approach. It's not about appealing to consensus. I know they can argue for the facts on their own merits. In other words, and then he, and then he says, I'll just read this. Second, our biggest worry is the lack of the details of testimony for the minimal facts. We can't know the disciples are rational unless we know more about the appearances, what they were like.
1: I would say we explain all of that. And it's going to be a lot more when, Lord willing, my book comes out with 600 pages detailing the the, a lot of these things and they'll still say what they want anybody can say what they want but we have plenty of stuff on the evidence and you know what even atheists new testament scholars regularly will say paul is an eyewitness and these seven books of paul which they all unanimously accept paul's given eyewitness data thank you if you're going to give us eyewitness data we'll use paul uh and we go on for data so A person may not think we've unpacked enough stuff. I want to know what enough is. And I want to know if if their method is going to pack more. They're going to be open to the same kind of criticism. Don't give me general sweeps of your position. And the larger the view is, the more sweeping you got to do. Take the big picture. Try to give as many facts for your view as you want for ours. As I said, this new one, I've got over 100 evidences plus additional considerations, over a hundred for just six plus one facts, seven facts, over a hundred. And if someone says, I need more, I need more. Well, I'd say concentrate on your own theory and you produce a hundred for every six facts you have and we can talk.
2: So, uh, Testify says, we can't know the disciples are rational unless we know more about the appearances, what were they like. And I agree, the minimal facts, the minimal facts uh, that are agreed upon by 90% or better of critical scholars, Um, Yeah, you wouldn't include uh, that Jesus was raised bodily, physically from the dead. I think that just comes up slightly short of the of the 90 percent, although I think the evidence is is abundantly strong that they were claiming they believed that Jesus had been raised physically, bodily from the dead. Um, And I, I I use that, but I wouldn't call it a minimal fact or necessarily historical better. Like I said, it just comes up a little bit short. Of qualifying um, a, a, as that. But you say, well, we don't know en- enough. I, I think we can tell through the fact that they are proclaiming these things that Jesus was raised physically, or I'm sorry, that Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul is also claiming that Jesus was raised uh, from the dead, and he was a non believer. So we may not know a whole lot about the disciples. Um, In minimal facts, but you got Paul. It's not just them. It's also Paul. And I think Gary now is putting in the conversion of of the skeptical brother of Jesus, James, which um, it it meets the 90 percent or better, and it meets good evidence for it. The reason I didn't include it in my large uh, case, my large book is because not many scholars uh, talk about it. Maybe I think I only counted at that time and again that was like 2008 um i think there were 29 scholars who that i found that commented on it maybe there's been more since then but because there there weren't too many i didn't include it but those who did you got heterogeneous consensus and um and it met the 90% or better so and, um, and
1: belie- unbelievers too yeah uh, unbelieving scholars concede the point
2: yeah
0: Well, now there's, uh, let me just, can I ask you a couple more questions and then, and then we'll quit. Um, First of all, let me, let me throw a couple of happy ones out here that are just uh, good news to praise God about. Uh, Group psychology podcast says these men saved my life. Minimal facts. So, uh, and with that, we uh, praise the
1: Lord. Amen. It's not us. We don't, we don't do the converting
2: business. That's up to the Lord. But that was his minimal facts was his truth language. Yeah, so, that's right. yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. That's good. That is a good note,
2: Braxton.
0: Yeah, and I, I wouldn't know with uh, this guy's profile pic. See, you just can't judge a p- book by its cover, can you? So, all right, um, let's see. Uh, there was another one like that. Uh, Jamie Goodlet here says, Dr. Habermas, can't stop thinking about that fish I had at l- lunch last time we got together. So you must have gone out to lunch with Jamie Goodlett. <laughs>
1: Jamie is yes I know Jamie quite well he drives down states away to have a meeting with me every year and go after the minimal facts he's very pro he doesn't go after him like a critic but he asks really good good uh, good questions and uh, he's uh, he's one of our first responders so he does a, a good job for everybody uh, at crime scenes too
0: okay so he, he's got um, something.
1: I was going to say, he's got something to go along with the first responder material. He's got a good witness too.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, several people have asked this question in different ways about different religions or worldviews, but could you take the minimal facts? Could you build a minimal facts, uh, case for say Mormonism or Islam or something like that? And I mean, I imagine you could try to build a case like that. How does, how does that fare? I'm sure you've thought about that.
1: Yeah. Let me take a shot. Um, when we do the head of the minimal, the, the key to the minimal facts is the gospel. We don't do a minimal facts for some event here in the Bible. I won't be specific. This event or this. How do you know Jesus fed the 5,000? How do you know this is true, that's true? We stay on the subject of the gospel because we think the result of that, deity, death, resurrection, if you can do an argument like that, a specific argument for deity, death, resurrection, I mean, a good physical one, you've got something. When it's over, you say, Hey, what about the gospel? Not about the these five thousand people eat. I don't have any problem with the five thousand. But it's the only miracle, by the way, besides the resurrection, it's reported all four gospels. But I, I think I think uh we stand the subject of the gospel. Now if you ask that same question, other religions, do you have any specific data for what you call the gospel, the good news, the core, what gets you through the gates of the kingdom and according to your system, I'd be very skeptical of finding any. And And they're really, oh, by the way, there's no resurrection among Orthodox followers of the major world religious founders. There are no claims of Mm -hmm. resurrection. So right away, if you can evidence resurrection, you're up to like, what, first, second, and third base? You only got (laughs) to run the last way? Uh, So if they say, what if we have something for this? What's the something going to be for? That there were early people who called themselves a this or that? Um, If there's no resurrection, and you go, what's so good about the resurrection? Well, almost 20 times in the New Testament we're told that believers will be raised just like Jesus was raised. And that's Mike's bodily point, which he does a really good job of in his big resurrection book. So does Tom Wright. So does John Cook. So does um, Andrew Luke and Gundry. Uh, great books on bodily nature. Hmm. But anyway, I don't know what they can do. I would like to see what they can do with minimal data. I've got things. The earliest sources for Buddha are 600, 800 years after the fact. The earliest copy of the Bhagavad Gita is 40 200 years after the writing, forty-two hundred. Zoroaster's theology is 1,000 years after he died. I'm not putting anybody down. I'm saying I would like to see what your argument looks like. That's it. Where's your evidence? Number two, it's probably not in your gospel. And number three, it's not about a resurrection because you don't have one. So now we're easier. Yeah,
0: that that middle piece uh, about it having to do with the gospel directly, that's an important consideration I'm not sure I would have thought of.
2: Well, what I would do is I'd say, yeah, you can build a minimal facts case for these these different religions, but how strong is it going to be? Because not only have, do you have to have that minimal facts, now that the truth of what you're saying in terms of your religion, your basic claims, has to be the best explanation for those. In other words, that let's say that Mormonism is true, that, that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God, that Muhammad was a true prophet of God that has to be the best explanation of those minimal facts. Um, It has to be better explanation than any um, alternative naturalistic hypotheses. And I don't think that's the case with either of Mormonism or Islam or any other religion. I think there's there's going to be a naturalistic explanation for those facts that is superior at explaining those than that those religions are true.
0: All right, Uh, here's another nice thing. I'm in the middle of teaching homeschool, but glad to catch you guys. Gary, your work, especially on doubt, has helped me more than I can say. I have not struggled with doubt in the past four or five years. And I think for people out there who are struggling with doubt right now, um, you've come to believe intellectually that Christianity is true and you've committed your life to Christ, but every now and then there's this nagging doubt because we're human and we live in a culture that very much fosters doubt and, and that sort of thing. And that's a message of hope that somebody got past it and and you should maybe do what she did or he did and look at Dr. Habermas's uh, materials on that. Do you have any Uh, comments?
1: By the way, the minimal facts or any facts is not going to cure the majority of doubt. According to working with this clinical psychologist friend of mine, 70, 80 percent of all doubt is emotional. C.S. Lewis says in the middle of talking about his emotional doubt, he says, learn to tell your emotions where to get off. And so for emotional doubters, which is the majority, here's a question to ask, does your doubt hurt? If it hurts, almost for sure, it's emotional. And when you give somebody facts, they're great tonight. They're in a good mood tomorrow, sort of good mood in two days. In a week, they're back in your office. How come my doubts came back? Because you have to teach somebody, you have to go into another totally different non-historical approach to deal with their emotions why are they hurting the good news is it really really works but don't think don't write to me and say i used your minimal facts and didn't give my friend friend passes emotional doubt it's not going to work like that it's just you know if you take medicine for one one disease it's not going to heal a different disease so you have to properly denote uh the disease you have to know what you're treating
0: and i think mike makes a good point well both of you have made this point that it that um the severity or, or what's at stake or seems to be at stake with these big worldview issues make us ha- get a little more OCD, like m- maybe like fixate, obsess in a way that we wouldn't. The, the amount of uh, confidence you have in the resurrection might be perfectly enough for you to believe if you had that level of evidence for something more mundane, you might be fine. But we fixate, and even though this, the, the evidence is sufficient, we're so worried, what if I'm wrong? that it can it can have it can cause that emotional doubt, right? By the way, what if is the second most
1: common indication of emotional doubt. One is how pump does it hurt. Number two is do you what if everything? So people yeah. went, what what if you're wrong? They ask me, what if you're wrong? I go, what if I'm not? No, no, what if you're wrong? And I go, no, really, what if I'm not? They go, you're not even answering it. I said, you could you consider your comment is not a charge. It's just a what if? So I responded with the what if. Oh all right, well, how do we go after this? Then they don't realize that they just want you to give ABCD. It can be done, but not the way they're doing it.
0: All right. Last question, guys. Um, and I really appreciate your time. And I, I want to say that this has been fantastic. And, uh, maybe, maybe in the midst of this moment, you can think about what you might want to say if you were going to sum this up, but, uh, but I want to ask one final question because I actually had two or three people ask it. And, um, it may not be directly related to the, the criticisms that, that are leveled against um, minimal facts, but it's an interesting one. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. Um, this is often argued to be um, an, an early creed of the church, and uh, we know that 1 Corinthians dates to the early to mid-50s, right? And this, is, this goes back earlier than that because Paul had it, he, and he put it in there, so it's earlier than that. And often I've heard it argued this way. We can run over to Galatians um, 1, is it 118 or thereabouts? And we see that Paul, when he'd he was converted, he didn't talk to anybody for a while. But then after three years, he went back to the home office. I've heard you guys say this. It's, it's surreal to say it back to you, but um, to check with them. And, and right, they gave him the fist bump, Mike. They gave him, uh, hey, you're good. But in any case, that would have been the first opportunity to get a creed like that. And that would have been if we place the conversion of Paul one to three years and we split the difference and it's two. And then we uh, after the uh, events of Jesus' death and possible resurrection. And then we say, okay, he didn't talk to anyone for three years. That's five years. And so I've heard at least Mike and I think both of you argue. Therefore, I've seen. Yeah, you, Gary, do the walk across the stage thing. Right. With the different timelines. But uh, but here's the question I have. And you probably sense where this is going. I know that the scholar, it's actually really impressive, the number of scholars and even not so conservative scholars where they'll where they'll put that, where they think that when how far back that goes almost almost immediately after the events, it seems like. And some will say three years. But here's the question. How do we really know or what what is the reason to believe it goes back to, say, let's say less than 10 years or something?
1: How about a month? Would that do it?
0: That would absolutely do it.
1: All right, well, let, let me back it up, then you jump in. Um, Paul's there at 35 or 36. That's the two to three years for conversion plus the three years to the trip. So it's two plus three or three plus three, 35 or 36 with a 30 AD crucifixion. The Jesus Seminar. If anybody knows them, they know we're not talking about Sunday school, uh, you know, surveys here. The Jesus Seminar reject 80 to 90% of the red-letter G- words of Jesus. And yet, this, in their book, What Did Jesus Do?, they decided, the majority of Jesus' seminar guys decided, that that creed predates Paul's conversion. It was around before he set out for Damascus is probably why he was tipped. Now, they do say, and it's a brilliant point, and if it's not the creed itself, it's the facts that are in the creed. I tell my PhD students doing a course on creeds, guys, at the end of the course, you might not believe I'm saying this, but it's not the creeds that interest me. It's the underlying data that interests me. And the the New Testament word for this is homologia. It's a New Testament word, and it starts from the beginning. So here's what it looks like. Jesus dies. Jesus is believed to be raised. And these guys start talking about it right away. How soon? Well, Garrett Ludeman, the atheist New Testament scholar, who just died uh, about two years ago, Uh, Garrett Ludeman said they preached that message immediately, his term. And he's not the only one that says that. Preached it immediately. It's the gospel preaching. And of the creedal verses in the New Testament, 80% of them are on the nature of the gospel. We know what their earliest message was. Okay, immediately, 80%. Probably that creed is in existence before Paul goes to Damascus. But even if not, the data are there, and they knew it from the beginning, and it's evidenced. And some of the best-known atheists say, we got the material from the beginning. So it's the material that backs up the claim, not necessarily the creed. It goes all the way back to the cross, according to these unbelieving New Testament scholars.
2: Yeah, I I agree with Gary on this. Um, I'd I'd go further and just say that uh, some of these scholars who say we can be entirely confident that the creed was formed within two to three years, or even within six months, I think they go further than, than what the evidence bears. Um, we can we know if Paul wrote, you know, no later, First Corinthians, no later than 56 or 57, and he most believe that he established a church in Corinth around the year 51, I delivered to you what I also received. Well, he delivered it to them in 51, what he'd received before then. So he received it by the year, let's just say, fifty. I think that's as far back as, as we can say, we can know with with a very high degree of certainty that the creed, as it stands, was in existence at that time. But I'm with Gary, exact, uh, precisely, to say, it's not the format of the creed itself that's that's really at issue here. It's the content of it, the content saying that Jesus died, was buried was raised and was seen by individuals and in groups, by friend and foe alike. That goes back to the very earliest times. There you go. And that's um, the key. Yeah, that's, that's what matters. I, I tell people, um, we have a lot of objects
1: where things are encapsulated. A baseball skin has guts inside it, and so many other things do too. The creed is the encapsulation. The homologia is the material inside the creed. The homologia for sure goes back to immediately after the cross. If the creed's pre-Pauline trip to Damascus, so so be it. Um, but it's the stuff inside that everybody puts back there. And if that's true, either believe or don't believe, your option. But you don't have any reason to disbelieve on the facts alone.
2: And you might say, well, how can we prove it? It was within one year or six months. Well, y- you can't. You can't prove it. But... You know, historians, when we talk about proof, we're not talking about absolute certainty uh, or something for which we can have 100 percent confidence. Right. We are talking about probability and everything in there. When you really think about it, uh, the pro- it, it's most probable. You've got plausibility. Probability is in favor of saying that this goes back, that there's really no um, There's no gap at all between when the alleged events occurred and when they began proclaiming this.
1: By the way, science is the same way. Science is inductive. And that's why I'm a little slower in the shroud because it could be disproven tomorrow. So no scientist can sit there and go, well, you guys only have probability, we have proof. No, the scientist that knows their stuff, which is all of them, basically, they don't prove things. They show it's more likely than not if. And the more angles they have to it, the more sure they are history is is called a social science for a reason it is it does use an empirical method you can't repeat it uh, the only question about that and I'm not real strong in this Braxton but if you say can't repeat it I go hey just for fun what about the shroud the shrouds repeatable so uh, we're in good company when you do induction because that's what the scientists do
0: yeah yeah that's fantastic well gentlemen I know that you're kind of experiencing <clears throat> maybe a little bit of a vacation time and and that sort of thing, and I sure appreciate that you were willing to jump on with me and entertain some of these questions, and I I just really have enjoyed this, and it's been fantastic for the channel, and I think the listeners uh, were seeing that they have really enjoyed this as well, and I, I believe that God will use this video in the future to clarify for people this method that they can use to talk to others about the gospel and the reason we have to be so thrilled. And so uh, is there anything in closing that you guys, I've got everything linked in the description, all your, all your places, all your stuff. And I encourage everyone to go check it out. Um, Is, is there anything else that either of you would like to say in summation?
2: Yeah, I I think for the minimal facts, when you look at all the data uh, that has, has come down to us, and you consider where the majority of critical scholars are today, um, I think the best explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead, and that HBU is a far better place to learn this kind of stuff than Liberty.
1: <laughs> yeah, we uh, could talk know. about that all day. Don't forget, Mike is a Liberty grad, so he can't. You know, he he got he's got to be careful here. Um, I, I, Braxton, I often start, start my lectures like this because people have doubts are so. Plentiful today. I've got a guy who does my doubt cases for me. He's talked to 3,000 people in the last three years. 3,000. And some of them say they're barely holding on by their fingernails. That those need, the emotional ones need to work on their emotions, but as a general rule. But here's what I start saying to them I'll say, listen, folks, you may be sitting here in this crowd and you may not know your view on Genesis 1. You may not know an answer to the Israelites being commanded to kill the Canaanites. You may be sitting there and not know whether you're Calvinist or an Arminian. You may not be sitting there and know where eschatology is and is these the last days. And I'll start and I'll say, look, solve those on your own time. I'm not telling you not to work on them. Work on them. But don't think that one of those trumps this. This doesn't. If the gospel's true, Christianity's true, or let me say it more specifically. If Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins, who was raised from the dead, and we will be raised like him almost 20 times in the New Testament, If that's true, guess what? Anyone who's in Christ is on on their way to eternal life. That's a clear teaching of the New Testament. You let me know later how you work out on one of those other issues. But if this issue's true, stop worrying and move on.
0: Amen. Praise the Lord. All right. Well, guys, I feel like I've been to church. I feel like I've been to school. (laughs) This has been just fantastic. But most of all, I feel like I've been hanging out with some Wonderful brothers and friends, and this has been great. And uh, I do encourage you all to check out their resources. There's some stuff on Dr. Habermas's website from way back that you can still find and access with near death experiences that that are fantastic uh, interviews and things yeah, like I think that.
1: We're back to the Middle Ages. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it was dark back then. It, all was, right. it was dark. Yeah. <laughs> all yeah. right. Well, this has been great. And folks, nice uh, listen. For Will th- yeah, thank you, Mike, for coming. Great and, interview, and...
1: super super informed interview. Well, well you know, I out with you,
0: pride myself on on my interview skills uh, <laughs> for the past two minutes. But uh, thank you all so much for being here. And folks, I hope you've enjoyed this. If you have, uh, check us out at trinityradio.org. You can also go to patreoncom trinityradio to get uh, e-books, audio books, um, or at least one audiobook, book, um, a song featuring my co-host Jonathan Pritchett singing in a new metal band from the early 2000s. And he raps, he raps. And the name of the band was Perseverance of the Saints, even though he's not a Calvinist. So you'll want to go check out all that free stuff and seminary level courses that we have there that you can, that you can start watching even now. Um, uh, gentlemen, it's been an honor. And folks, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.